And, um, but turn to Galatians 2. We'll be reading uh, the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2 uh, this morning. Let's give our attention uh, to God's perfect word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that are proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God knows, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellow fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, come with power in me and in them. Your word is like rain that comes down. It must accomplish what you desire. Fulfill Isaiah 55, 10, 11 this morning, Lord, that it would bear fruit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I actually want to begin um, at a very sad place, um, actually in the African nation of Mauritania. If you're familiar, it's in uh, northwest Africa on the coast. It was actually the last nation in the world to outlaw slavery in just 1981. Many of you were alive in 1981, but actually it wasn't until 2007, even more of you were alive then, that they actually made it, a law was passed to allow the prosecution of slave owners. So they outlawed it, but then made no laws to actually do anything about it for a number of years. The situation of slavery, some would say, is the worst in the world. I mean, this is not hundreds of years ago. This is recent history. And in rural areas, entire communities of slaves still exist best I can tell, to today, as the authorities turn a blind eye. In the New Yorker, an article was written, this was a while ago, this was 2014, Alexis um, Okiawa reported on the situation there in Mauritania. She says this, this is from her article, um, when she went there and did her research, no one in their community who looks like them has ever known another way of life other than slavery. One former child slave told me, In the village, when a slave says he does not want to be a slave anymore, people will ask, why? Who are you? Your mother was a slave. Your grandmother was a slave. Who are you? Isn't that sad? They knew no other identity. 
Why what, could they imagine a life apart from slavery? Is it possible that spiritually we live a little like those slaves? Romans 6.17 says, you were once slaves to sin. So we all were born into slavery. We grew up in slavery. We had no choice but to just give way to whatever our flesh wanted. If you're a believer, you've been set free from that. But why would we want to go back? I mean, you'd think, man, once you have taste freedom, you'd say, I never want slavery again. You'd, you'd enjoy it. But remember, even the Israelites, remember they left Egypt? Right? They get out into the desert. They're finally free from their terrible masters. They get out there, and what do they do? They immediately look back with longing. Do you remember that? They said to Moses, oh, if we could only be back in Egypt. It's ridiculous. You were slaves there. It's a strange phenomenon. Look at page 7. You'll see where we're going this morning. It says, um, since we're all so prone to falling back into slavery, one, understand how the gospel sets us free. Since we're also prone to falling back into slavery, two, guard against becoming a slave again. And third, embrace the freedom we have in the gospel. So we'll begin with the first one. Since we're also prone to falling back into slavery, understand how the gospel sets us free. Understand. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Our passage began, it said after 14 years, he was converted 14 years later. It's a long time. Some of you kids, you're younger than 14. So it'd be your whole lifetime. He's been preaching the gospel, but he says he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Okay, so Barnabas is a Jew and Titus a Gentile. That's going to be important in a second. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Who are the influential people? Those are the apostles, actually. So that word is going to appear three or four times in our text. It's talking about the other apostles. We'll unpack that as well. Okay, so he says, um, he presented privately those who were influential. The gospel I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What's that mean? He's not worried, was he preaching the wrong gospel? What he's worried about, imagine the scenario. He goes to Jerusalem and they reject him. They reject Titus. If that were to happen, and all of a sudden you have a divided church, all the other apostles are preaching to Jews and saying, oh, you need to be circumcised, you need to come like a Jew, and Paul is the only one preaching, no, it is faith alone that saves. Can you imagine that? This was Paul's fear. He would have been running in vain if that were to happen. So he's going to see what happens. Now, I want you to remember what we're, this book that we have in front of us. Paul is writing a letter to the Galatians because these, these bad guys, these false teachers have come in and have lied. They've said lies about Paul. They've said lies about the gospel, lies about the apostles. And so imagine this is like a court case. In chapter one, we had exhibit A and B, right? He said, hey, I'm not we're trying to win the approval of man. Obviously, if I was doing that, I wouldn't even be a servant of Christ. And he said, what else did he say? Oh, he didn't get the gospel secondhand. Remember kids, the telephone game? He said, I didn't play the telephone game. I didn't get it from the apostles. He gave a detailed account. I went here, 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 and none of that was going to the apostles, getting their approval or learning the gospel from them. Okay, so now we get to exhibit C. What is, how is he arguing this? Here's the argument. He's brought with him Barnabas, no surprise, but Titus. 
He's brought with him Titus. He dared to bring an uncircumcised Gentile into the holy city. Now, we, 2,000 years later, that doesn't mean all that much. So let me just try to help it mean something to you. So think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament built these high walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. It told the Jews, you don't marry Gentiles. You don't live like them. You don't eat unclean foods like them. You don't even allow them at your dinner table. Okay, all these laws. And then Paul has the audacity to bring Titus, this uncircumcised Jew, into Jerusalem. So the big question is, how are they going to respond? Why is Paul bringing this up? Because what did the false teachers probably say? You got, you, um, the message you got, Paul, from the apostles, you got it wrong. The apostles say you have to be circumcised. So Paul is proving that wrong. Does that make sense what he's doing? Look at the next verse. Verse 3. It says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is huge. He's just said, he came uncircumcised, and he left uncircumcised. This is like a mic drop moment, right? That to say, look, how could you believe these false teachers? The apostles, we're going to read later, gave the right hand of fellowship, just like I did this morning. Right? They, they didn't make Titus get circumcised. Do you see how he's building his court case? See, what Titus and Paul knew was that the gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings freedom. You're no longer under this bondage of the Old Testament law. I want to tell you about a situation that probably many of you can relate with. Um, sometimes I'll get a medical bill in the mail. I'll open it up and I'll think to myself, I'm almost positive I already paid this. Have you had that happen? And so I, what do you do? You probably do the same thing I do. You call the doctor's office and you say, here's my account number. They look it up and they say, oh, they say these three wonderful words, paid in full. They say, oh, you already paid that. You can throw that bill away. Have you had that happen? I've had that happen. Okay, how does that relate? Spiritually, you, your account has been paid in full. Anyone that comes to you and say, you owe money. Hey, there's something you haven't done. There, if I say, anyone else says, hey, I know you, you have believed, and by faith you think you're saved, but there's something else. You need to do something else. My account is paid in full. No matter how many bills you get, if you know your account has been paid in full, Christ paid it in full. Listen to what Colossians 2, if that's something that you struggle with, write down this reference. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Wondering if your, account has been, <clears throat> if your account has been paid in full. Colossians 2, 13, 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, that's all of us, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. How many? All of them. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross is your proof that your account is paid in full. You can live in freedom. You can take a deep breath. There is nothing more. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, there's nothing more that you need to do that you can add to your salvation. Doesn't that, isn't that freeing? It should be freeing. 
1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's you guys, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to be assured of your salvation, grounded only on Christ, not your performance, not by living a good life. So I say it again. Since we're all so prone to falling into slavery, please understand how the gospel sets you free. But now there is those who want to make you a slave again. That brings us to our second point. Since we're all so prone to falling back into slavery, guard against becoming a slave again. Look at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out. Kids, this is like the language of espionage. You know that word? It's spies. Spies sneak in. Now, what did they, why did they sneak in? Who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. Um, kids, if you have a bulletin, I would circle, or adults, circle that word freedom. So that, you, so that they might bring us into, circle that word, slavery. That's what the whole morning we're talking about. Slavery and freedom. They spied out our freedom because they wanted to make us slaves. Again, Paul is telling a story. This is him in Antioch, likely, Acts 11. And he's saying, hey, I too have had an encounter with these guys. They're called Judaizers. Uh, the Judaizers, Judaizers believe that you also needed circumcision to really be a Christian. And so he had had a run-in with them, and so he's telling that story. So keep reading. <clears throat> Despite our freedom... So they may make us slaves. To them, this is so important, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Even for a moment. So we didn't give them an inch. He didn't say, well, we became friends and we talked about it, but we thought they were taking things a little bit far, but who are we to judge? You know, to each their own. No. He's coming out strong. He says, not for a moment did we submit to them. I never heard of a man named Winston Churchill. In uh, June 4th, 1940, he gave this famous speech to the House of Commons. This was right after the evacuation of the British and French armies from Dunkirk. There might have been some discouragement in the air. And this is what he said. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields, in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Those were his words. Winston Churchill was proclaiming that they would fight to the death, right? He said, we're not going to negotiate. Other countries in Europe had, had um, negotiated with Hitler. He said, we aren't going to do it. This is a modern picture of what Paul said in verse 4. He said, we will not submit to them for a moment. We aren't going to give them an inch. How did it go for those countries in Europe that negotiated with Hitler? If you know your history, you know what happened. Do not give them an inch, Paul says. Now, does this still happen today? This was the Judaizers, was one of the major attacks in the early church. Does this still happen today? The reality is it's been happening ever since then. All through the past 2,000 years, the church has been under attack. 
I want to break those attacks down into two categories for you. Okay, one is bold-faced open attacks, and the other is more subtle. Those are the more dangerous ones. But let's talk about some bold-faced attacks. Um, let's look in the 1500s. I've mentioned this. Uh, the book of Galatians, God used powerfully in the Reformation. Um, the Catholic Church, people had snuck in there to spy out freedom, and it was a mess. And the Reformation happened, and they said, no, you are saved by faith alone. Luther, Calvin, so many other reformers. I want to read to you the official response of the Catholic Church. This is the Council of Trent. Just for the record, this is still official Catholic doctrine, never repealed. This is Canon 9 from the um, Council of Trent. If anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, hopefully it's all of you, it's all Protestants, If anyone says justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared or disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Kids, there's a vocab word for you. Anathema. You know what it means? Cursed to hell. What's interesting is the King James of chapter 1, remember Paul said that, of those who distort the gospel. He said, let them be accursed. You look at your King James, it's going to say anathema. If I remember right. Do you realize what they just said? They said, anyone who says salvation is by faith alone, let them go to hell. Okay, that's pretty bold-faced. It was a bold-faced attack on the gospel. Now there's other churches, fast-forwarding, who say you must be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Usually, they're attaching this to speaking in tongues. Until you've spoken in tongues, you're kind of like a second-rate Christian. Until you speak in tongues, then you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've come from a background like that, I would love to sit down with you and open the Scriptures and let you see how that's a distortion of the New Testament. That's not what the New Testament is preaching at all. This is a bold-faced attack. You don't need something more than faith alone. Everyone who becomes a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want to now turn to the more dangerous one. The subtle attacks. Those are so obvious. Many of you are not tempted by those. But these next, I imagine most of us have fallen under this temptation that we would functionally add something to the gospel. Of course, we wouldn't do it officially. Those are official additions. Something more subtle. What could we add to the gospel that would bring us back into slavery? The list is endless. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of examples. Prepare yourself. I'll step on toes most of yours before I'm done. If you're really going to be a first-rate Christian... It all is about how you educate your children. If you don't keep your kids home and homeschool them, you're messing up. Or if you don't engage the culture and put them in public school, you're not really a first-rate Christian. Is that adding something to the gospel? Functionally, yes. It is that there's something you must do. Now, not may. And sure, there could be wisdom in either situation. When you make it a must, You must be a Republican. Or you must care about the the needs of the poor and be a Democrat if you're really going to be a first-rate Christian. You laugh, but there's churches 
that culturally they say this, you must wear your Sunday best or you need to dress casually and show that Jesus says, come as you are. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things, but when these things become a must, you must do this. We're adding to the gospel. Fathers, you need to lead your family spiritually. You need to be doing family worship every night to really be a first-rate Christian. Do you see how that just subtly adds to the gospel? Of course, they say on paper, their website says, we believe in faith alone. But you go to their churches and you realize there's some must here. You must do these things. Brandon and I really make an effort to try not to do that. But even with, despite our effort, you in your hearts can hear we teach and say, hey, the Ten Commandments says this. And you hear in your hearts and say, oh, I need to add that. If I don't add that, I'm not. It's almost the ground of your salvation starts to get blurry. On Monday's my day off. Um, today is a work day for me. Uh, now it's a day of rest for you. And so the past couple of weeks on my day off, to do something very different, I enjoy yard work. It gives me something very different. I don't know about you. Do your, does your grass like invade your beds? It does it in my house. And so I decided to um, fight that back. And so got, I sprayed Roundup, put weed fabric, put mulch down, and dug a trench all the way around my beds. And I put concrete block edging. There is now a very clear delineation between where my grass ends and where my bed begins. I don't know if any of you can relate with any of this. Is there a clear concrete barrier between the edges of the gospel and everything else in your heart? Because it will. It just grows in. It gets confusing as you go through your Christian life. Now, where does one end and one begin? Where is my, that I want to strive to please God? Of course, we want to, I want you to obey the Ten Commandments. That's why you preach through them. But it's not the ground of your salvation. I hope you, does that make sense? There are people, and I don't want to be one of them, who brings anyone into slavery again. You should breathe the fresh air of the gospel. The gospel begins and ends with faith alone. It is a gift that you receive. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. Tim Keller spoke of this and called it cultural bondage. He said this, there is a tremendous danger on the part of Christians of falling into cultural bondage. We may not say you have to be circumcised, but it's so easy to take our particular cultural values and say, if you're a real Christian, if you're a full Christian, you will live like us. You'll dress like us. You'll think like us. You'll like our kind of music. You'll smell like us. You'll be punctual like us. There are all sorts of things that the Bible says nothing about. They're just cultural things. Every culture has a different view of punctuality. Did you know that? Every culture is different about how you dress. I think Tim Keller got it right. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. We're a young church. Our church culture is still forming. There's still time. I warn you with all sincerity, be careful. Be careful that we don't develop a culture as a church that adds must to the gospel in a way that confuses things, that makes you a slave again. It is essential that there be a clear delineation in your mind and your heart. What is the gospel and what's everything else? Do not yield in submission 
even for a moment. If you were to go farther in this book, in Galatians 5, he says, For freedom, 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, that same picture, that paradigm of slavery and freedom. So, since we're all so prone to falling back into slavery, we must guard against becoming a slave again. So there's the danger to avoid. Our passage has something else to say about something to embrace. So third and finally, more briefly, since we're all so prone to falling back into slavery, embrace, embrace the freedom you have in Christ. Now, if you look at verse 6, he says, from those who seem to be influential, you know who that is, that's the apostles. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who, were, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, on the surface, it sounds like he doesn't like these guys. Doesn't it sound like he's putting them down? He's not at all. Remember the context. Context is king. The context is the false teachers came into the Galatian church and said, the apostles are superstars and Paul is a nobody. Okay? And so Paul is just leveling. He's just saying, they're my peers. Right? He's acknowledging, yeah, they, they seem to be influential. He, he, would, he's, he would not be saying this except for the situation. Okay, does that make sense? So he's not being down on them. But he is making a point. We're, they're my peers. They're my equals. But what did they add to the gospel? Look at the end of verse 6. Nothing. They added nothing. Very, very important. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, okay, so when you see uncircumcised, think Gentile. But Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, think Jew. For he who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me and mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace given to me, what did they do? They gave us the right hand of fellowship. Remember, that was at the beginning. He said, did I run in vain? No. At the end, they gave us the right hand of fellowship. Now, some of you uh, went with us uh, on that mission trip. Do you, do you remember that? You saw a little video about it, right, when we went and we cleaned up at New City Fellowship PCA, our sister church up in Orangeburg, just an hour from here. That church is ministering to a very different demographic, different culture than we are. They are very intentionally trying to be multi-ethnic, in a predominantly African-American area, in a community. Very different than Cane Bay. It looks, it's much lower income. And so JP, the pastor there, has a unique situation, right? Different from ours. And so what we see here, just as I, I guarantee you, Paul and Peter's ministry did not look the same. Paul at the, um, on Mars Hill, when he says, I see your altar to the unknown God, I bet those words never came out of Peter's mouth. He was ministering in a very different context. JP is ministering in a very different context to me. The culture of his church looks different. We have freedom to do that. That's okay. Right? Our theology is fixed. This is a, something from RUF. That our theology is fixed, but we have a flexible methodology. But it's not just up there in Orangeburg. It should be true here. There should be flexibility. Each of you are in unique situations, different stages of life, and, and different situations with children or no children or in college. We must 
We must embrace the freedom we have in the gospel. You should enjoy the freedom you have to educate your children in the way you think is best, to dress in the way you think is best. That's okay. It's not only okay, it's important. You see, this is what our whole, our whole passage is about. Embracing freedom, guarding against slavery. As we wrap up this morning, you know, over the past few weeks, it's as if we've turned this diamond in the light of the gospel. Looking at different facets of it this morning, we've looked at the facet of freedom. It's very important. Please don't hold your freedom too lightly. If you hold it too lightly, someone else will make you a slave. Please put concrete edging blocks around the gospel or your grass will spread. Some of you know the vision of our church is to experience the full life found in Christ alone and to help many others experience the same in Cane Bay, Charleston, and around the world to the glory of God alone. That first line, to experience the full life, that begins with the gospel. It begins with the freedom, embracing it, guarding it, that you would realize that you now need to, you need nothing else. You either need to receive the gift if you have not, or if you have, understand that there's nothing else to add. Your freedom was purchased by the very blood of Christ. Remember as that verse said, he nailed it to the cross. Don't look back. Freedom is way better than slavery, even if you've been a slave all your life. The gospel sets us free. Be vigilant against anything that adds to the gospel and brings us back into slavery. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would develop a healthy culture here, a culture that has a clear delineation between the gospel and everything else. There'd be freedom, freedom to breathe deeply and, and, and make appropriate decisions for our, each of our situations. Father, please, please, please protect Brandon and I from miscommunicating and protect their hearts from hearing something that we aren't saying, that your word is not saying, that they would not take anything else and hold it up equal and make it part of their salvation. Please, Lord, protect us all. In the ways that we do that, Lord, please show it to us. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table.